Well, if you've been here over the last few weeks, you know that we are studying a chapter in the New Testament, the 15th chapter of Luke's Gospel. So if you have your Bible, I'd like you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there might be one in front of you. Um, We have some new NASB Bibles that are in the pews in case you want to follow in the same translation. Luke chapter 15, and as you're turning to that, I want to drop into your thinking an idea that I think is so crucial for us. Um, It's always been crucial for Christians to understand and get a hold of, especially as it relates to the world around us, to the ongoing cultural, social trends around us, and to man's general attitude toward God, toward the Bible, towards the truth of the gospel. And so while you're there, don't move from where you're there in Luke chapter 15, but I want to give this idea to you to ponder. And and it's this idea, really. Do you realize that as a Christian witness, as one who has people in your life that you want to see come to the knowledge of God. You want to see them come into the family of God. You want them to understand the gospel. And there is a trend going on nowadays, and it's become a little bit more militant in the last few decades. There's a kind of atheism that's now out there that's almost militant with such leaders as Richard Dawkins, and I could name a handful, and they are almost militant in their obsession with uh, denying the existence of God and denying the scriptures and uh, painting the whole of religion into a very dark corner. But we have a trump card that they don't know about. And that's something that we need to always realize that in our witness, we do not witness alone. That not only is God the Holy Spirit in our lives promised to come and convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, but on top of that, God has not left man without evidence within him of his reality in the universe as the creator of all things. So listen carefully to these words. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then he says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. I'm reading from Romans chapter 1. And this word suppression is literally the idea of holding down. And so before we look at Luke 15, I'd like you to have this illustration in mind. 
the idea of suppression is, is, is sort of like um, if you've ever been on the beach, ever been in a swimming pool, swimming and, and frolicking around and had a beach ball, have you ever tried to push that beach ball down under the water, maybe pin it between your legs and keep it down? Ever tried to do that? It's not easy, is it? And you, and not, and you can't do it for very long. Another illustration is the idea of a spring, the idea of resistance. Uh, can you imagine a, a, a big spring? Sometimes they have them in the, uh, in the health clubs res, for resistance training. And it's basically just a spring with some handles on it. And you push it in as hard as you can and you hold it. And you keep it there. And in a sense, this word suppressing the truth in unrighteousness is the idea of holding down a spring that's under tension. That's the idea. And whenever a person comes to that point, that moment in their life where the Spirit of God opens their understanding, opens their heart, awakens them to God and calls them back to Him when they have been far from Him, it is because in the mercy of God, He has allowed them to deplete all of their strength to where they can no longer suppress that spring any longer. And in the story we're going to look at today, there's a moment that comes in the story that Jesus tells where this young man can no longer suppress the truth, the truth of, of the love and mercy of God. Now, uh, we have looked so far in, in this 15th chapter, we, we began by saying that, uh, in fact, let's look at the opening two verses. It says, Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. So the first group are tax collectors and notorious sinners who are, who are at the feet of Christ listening to him. But then there's another group that's there, and they are the religious rulers of the time, the self-righteous, if you will. And in verse 2, it reads, and, and both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble saying, this man receives sinners, he even eats with them. So we have two target groups. And we've said over the last couple weeks that Jesus responds to this by telling some stories. And he tells three stories, basically. He tells the first story about a lost sheep. And then he tells another story about a woman who lost a silver coin. And today, he's going to give us a story of two lost sons. Particularly, I think we probably won't get beyond the, the younger son. But when you look at the story, it's all one story from verses 11 through 32. And what ties all three of these together is, we have said, something very valuable was lost. Something valuable was sought, searched for. Something very valuable was found, 
And upon finding it, there was fourthly a celebration. And last week we focused on the joy in the heart of God over one sinner who comes to repentance, who comes back to him, who reaches the point where they can no longer suppress the truth and hold it down. And they're brought to that moment, that life transformative moment, when they come in contact with the one they've sought to deny or run from or plug their ears to. Now, interestingly enough, in this story, and by, this is a fascinating chapter, and we really could spend many, many weeks on it, but what's so interesting about it is that the younger son that we will be looking at, and I know this is like the most famous parable in all the scriptures, so I know most of us here are very familiar with the story of the, what's called the prodigal son. The younger son represents verse 1, the tax collectors and the sinners, mankind in general in his lost condition. The older son that we come to later in the story, he represents verse 2, the scribes and Pharisees, who in self-righteousness, self-assured that their religious rigor and their disciplined morality and all of it would somehow certainly make them right with God, so much so that they're criticizing Jesus for even associating with sinners and drawing close to them. So this whole chapter is a, as a whole is all tied together with this tremendous theme of God rescuing, saving, and loving the sinner. I wonder if we couldn't ask ourselves a question this morning before we look at these verses. I guess we could. When you think about your own understanding of God, your understanding of God the Father, do you think that, it, that there's a chance that you may have underestimated the love of God? You think there's a chance? Many through the centuries have sought to define or describe the love of God. Last week I mentioned a little book by J.B. Phillips called Your God is Too Small. And then I also mentioned that a a, a, a small book, but a very weighty book by A.W. Tozer called The Knowledge of the Holy is a brilliant devotional classic on the nature and character of God. And in that book, The Knowledge of the Holy, let me find it here because I wanted to make sure that you had this. Tozer gives one of the best descriptions of the love of God that I've ever, I've ever seen. He says this, Tozer writes this, because God is self-existent, and that in itself is hard for us to grasp, because everything we're familiar with is contingent on something else. And so when you ask a small child, when a child comes to you, when they hit those inquisitive years where they start asking, Mama, where did that come from? And Mama answers, but her answer is never adequate. 
And if the little philosopher at age four is sharp, she'll say, yeah, but, but where did that come from? And you'll trace it back finally until you get back to, well, honey, God created everything. And then comes the question, doesn't it? But who made God? Who created God? And the little philosopher, only four or five years old, is immediately confronted with what theologians call the self-existence of God. He did not begin. Everything he made had a beginning, but he himself did not begin. He doesn't begin, he doesn't end. Words like begin and end are creation words, but they never apply to the creator who himself is self-existent. So Tozer writes this, because God is self-existent, his love had no beginning. And because he is eternal, his love can have no end. And because he is infinite, his love can have no limit. And because he's holy, he is the quintessence of all spotless purity. His love is as white, hot, and holy as he is. Because he is immense, his love is an incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea. End of quote. Now, having read that, those kind of words, like the great hymn, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Those kinds of poetic, contemplative words often leave us admiring the language, but at the same time, not very moved. In other words, those thoughts are so big, so spacious, so wondrous, that I can't get a hold of that. And for most of us, that's true. We're not contemplatives. And as they say, about 10% of society are abstract thinkers, leaving the rest of us needing something concrete. And the Lord knew this. And so in the 15th chapter of Luke, he tells stories about the love of God, about the searching uh, Pursuit of the love of God after something valuable that's been lost. And he finds what's lost. And he embraces what's lost. And he celebrates over what's been lost. Because he values it. Because his love is so great. So we have the, the lost sheep. And we have the lost silver coin. But even those are a bit impersonal. When we come to this final story. He brings the love of God down into contact with us in a way that is unmistakable. If you're a parent and have a child, then you immediately can relate to the story. He brings it right down into the dearest, warmest, most valuable relationships that we all have 
that of family. And in this story, it's the story about a father whose heart is broken because of the sinfulness, the hatefulness, the selfishness, the pride, and the wastefulness of his younger son. That's what prodigal means, by the way. It means wasteful or uh, extravagant uh, to squander. So in verses 11 through 24, because it's so familiar to us all, I've, I've outlined it in a real simple way. There's just three movements in the story that I want you to see. The first is the son's rebellion and ruin. The son's rebellion and ruin, verses 11 through 16. And then, secondly, the son's reflection when he can no longer suppress what he knows to be true and his repentance. And then, thirdly, the son's reception and restoration to the father. Let's look at it together. In verses 11 through 16, the son's rebellion and ruin. Verse 11, Jesus says, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered, there's the word, he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that land, that country. And he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. And no one was giving anything to him. This is almost impossible for us to fully appreciate in a small Jewish village where everyone knows everyone. Having a son break with protocol, break with ages of tradition, break with the Old Testament law regarding inheritance, he broke with everything. And this son demanded of his father his inheritance before the father died. And it's hard for us to grasp what a scandal this would have been at that time. Instead of getting a beating for this request and disowned and removed from the home, the father grants him his request. Now, there's parts about this story, I admit, I don't fully understand. 
except for the, the impact and the effect this story would have had on the listeners because the Lord is telling a story that's just unthinkable. In essence, what this son is really saying is that I am fed up with the restraints of living at home. I've had enough of this. I want freedom. And of course, sin always promises us freedom. It always makes promises of pleasure. It always baits itself in attractive ways that's alluring and drawing and looks like it's, it's just the best thing there could be. And yet sin, we're told in Scripture, the wages and the result and the consequences of continual sin is death. W.H. Griffith Thomas, in his little devotional commentary on this passage, he wrote, here are the downward steps that this son took. First, we see his desire. His desire to throw off any restraints and the burden of living under the, the father's authority, of doing the work, and, and he just is fed up with this farm life, this agrarian lifestyle. He was young and full of vim and vigor, and he wanted to get out and be free. His desire led to a demand of his father, and that's kind of the force of it. Father, give me. There's no please. There's no, you, don't, you get the idea that it was very terse. Give me my share in the inheritance. Then there's division. The father divides up the property. Two-thirds to the older son, being the firstborn, and one-third to him. And we can't even imagine what that would have involved. It wasn't like going down to the bank and simply writing a check. He had to begin liquidating. He had to sell property. He had to sell livestock. In order to give his son one-third of his estate, he would have had to, and it would have been the talk of the village. Everyone would have been aware of what he was doing. And he did it. And he gave it to this son. And then the son departs. And it just says in, not, in just a few days. He couldn't wait to get out and be on his own. And then danger. We see the danger. Here he is. Out from under all restraints. No accountability to anyone. Friends that he can buy with a denarii. And down the spiral goes. From desire to demand, he departs. There's danger. Eventually, destitution. He had gone through his entire inheritance and wasted it, squandered it, is the word used, in riotous living. And then we're told of desertion. Where'd all the friends go? They all disappeared. And now he is deserted and destitute. And eventually we see him in such degradation that he sells himself out to one who raises pigs. And he finds himself a Jewish boy out amongst the stench and stink and filth of the swine, not even being fed, longing simply to eat what the pigs are feeding on. The young man is dying. And that's this picture. 
sin began with its great promise of freedom, autonomy, and it ended up leading him to the point of near death. Can you see him? By now in rags, unclean, unkept, filthy, hungry, loss of weight, perhaps sickly. He's a mess. And then the story turns. And that's the second point. And by the way, this this opening statement here in verse 17, it says, but when he came to his senses. You know, that's that moment when I can no longer suppress the truth of my need for God, my need for his mercy and grace. I no longer have the strength to keep it suppressed and held down. And every person who comes to Jesus Christ reaches a point at which he says something like, what have I done? Or what have I become apart from God? What has leaving God out of the equation of my life left me with? And so he comes to his senses. The son's reflection and repentance. Look at verse 17 and follow with me. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. And then he makes a decision. I will get up and go to my father. And will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he got up and came to his father. Again, in W.H. Griffith Thomas' classic little book, he says, this is what happened. There were first the steps downward, but then there are steps upward. And it began with, he came to his senses. And so he writes, first there is reflection. He begins to reflect on his life apart from God. He begins to reflect on what he had done, where he had come from, and where he was now. He begins to reflect, and then he begins to remember life on the farm that he used to hate and despise and couldn't wait to throw it off his shoulders and be on his way to the promise of freedom and the promise of prosperity and the promise of pleasure. And then he makes a resolution. I will go to my father. And so we have him returning. He's returning and then we have the reception and the restoration, the rejoicing and the reconciliation that follow. It is a mistake to assume that association with Christian people even attendance in church, or even fairly good morals 
is the equivalent of being restored to a relationship with God. It is a mistake to think that. We know this later in the, in the story with the older son. He never left, and yet he was never really there. The son's rebellion and ruin, he comes to himself, and then we have his reflection and his repentance. The word metanoia in the New Testament, repentance, means a change of mind that results in a whole new direction in the life. He's repentant. And it's, there's almost some fun in the story because Jesus tells, gives us a little insight. He's rehearsing what he's going to say. And all the way on his journey home, he's thinking through how he's going to put this and how he knows he's horribly shamed his father. He sinned against heaven and against his own father. And he's rehearsing all of this of how if he could just sleep in the barn, perhaps, like the hired servants and have a little bit to eat and feel safe again and out from under the elements and if he could just be back there. And so he's asking the father, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. That's a dead issue the moment I walked away and took my inheritance. And I don't expect forgiveness and I don't expect you to embrace me. All I'm asking is, can you treat me like one of your hired servants? You know I know how to do the work. Just put me to work. So he's got this all rehearsed. It's a rehearsal he never gets to uh, play out because the father never gives him a chance. <laughs> it's such a beautiful story, such a tender story. So thirdly, the son's reception and restoration. Look at it there in verse 20. I know of no place in all the Bible where the tenderness of the heart of God and the greatness and intensity of his love is more vivid than right here. Here comes this son. He comes over the horizon, perhaps. Walking, perhaps stooped. He's weak. It says he's so hungry he was dying. So we know he's not in good shape. And he's carrying with him the stench of the swine. Verse 20 says, And he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Some commentators have said, this is something you would never see an old man do. And because it would, there, for one thing, he wouldn't want to show off his legs. And in his robe, the kind of robes they wore at this particular time, he would have had to, he would see the sun a great distance off and immediately be overcome with emotion as if he'd been watching for a very long time 
and he would grab the skirts of his robe and pull them up in order to run. And here is this dignified, older, godly, good father running, perhaps, through the village, on the outskirts of the village, where others could see, not caring at all about dignity, not caring at all about embarrassment, throwing off any of that, because the intensity of his love for his son was all he felt, and the longing to be reconciled with him. And the father runs to meet him. He doesn't see him at a distance and think, here, come, here he comes straggling back in. I tried to tell him, but he wouldn't listen. Boy, how I'm going to get some mileage out of this. And goes back into the house and closes the door, makes him walk that mile that seems like eternity. And in shame and embarrassment, pound on the door. I'll ignore that for a while. I want him to feel the weight of this. There's none of that. And by the way, that's exactly what the Pharisees would have been thinking. They're angry at Jesus already. They're angry for the ridiculous story that a father would give his son his inheritance ahead of time. They're angry at the son for his hateful, selfish, proud, self-centered, pleasure-seeking life that would demand that of the father and shame him in the entire community. They're angry at this kid. That's all they feel. They're even angry at the father now when they hear that a father would run to meet his son. You know, Tozer's right. His definition that God is self-existent and therefore his love has no beginning. He's eternal, it can have no end. He's infinite, it can have no limit. He's holy, his love is pure and holy and true. And he is immense, meaning his love is incomprehensible. It's vast, bottomless, shoreless, beyond our comprehension. But Jesus is telling us a story. And he's bringing the love of God so close to us, there's no escape. He's bringing it right to our hearts. This story of a father who sees his son a great way off and is compelled to jerk up his robes and run to meet this son. And he, when he comes to him, this display of love is overwhelming. He felt compassion for him. He ran, and it says he embraced him. And the, it's a very strong language. He embraced him and would not let him go. And the son may have felt so ashamed and so unworthy that he might have been resisting. Have you ever given somebody a hug? that's feeling hurt and ashamed and withdrawn? You ever try to give them a hug and feel how they stiffen up and they want to pull away from you? You ever experienced that? Of course you have. Have you ever been the person wanting to pull away because you're ashamed and you feel unworthy? Of course you have. The father wasn't having any of it. The word and the idea is he embraced him and would not let go. Until finally the resistance 
melted under his arms and gave in to the love and grace and mercy of this father. And it says he kissed him, and it means repeatedly kissed him. Was the father smelling the pig pen? Was he concerned about the dirt and the filth? Was he concerned about the condition of these ragged clothing? The smell of old urine and sweat? Did he care about any of that? I don't know that he even smelled it. All he had was love. Reconciling, restorative, forgiving love for his repentant son. This is just hard to even fathom. And it says in verse 21, this is the son's attempt. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the rest of what he had rehearsed had to do with make me one of your hired servants, just give me a corner in the barn, etc., etc. But the father cuts him off. Verse 22. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly! Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand, the family signet ring and sandals on his feet. And don't stop there. You know that fatted calf that has been saved for a special occasion? The fattened, the fattened calf. It's very distinct. It would mean the special calf that would be only used for Hebrew festival times or perhaps a reception at a wedding or something, of, uh, something extraordinary. There's one designated calf, fattened up, grain-fed, the finest veal. Go get him. Slay him. Let's have a barbecue. And he says, let us eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to be merry. Celebration. The gospel must all, we always live with the tension. And it's so interesting to me that in this chapter, both sides of the story are told theologically. I believe with all my heart that a person is saved and drawn into fellowship with Christ by the power of the gospel and by the sovereign grace of God. He is sovereign in grace and salvation. But that's only half of it. Mankind is also responsible to stop suppressing the truth and come to his senses 
and come back to God. And so both divine sovereignty in the first two stories, because the sheep had no participation in being found. Did it? How about the coin? How much credit does the coin get for being found? Zero. But this story is a little different. This story says that the son came to his senses and resolved to repent and come back to God. And both divine sovereignty and human responsibility are seen in this chapter. I agree with Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was asked one time, how do you reconcile divine sovereignty and human responsibility? And he said, classically, friends don't need to be reconciled. And where the two meet, I do not know, and I do not want to know. I will accept God at his word. I live with the tension of not knowing. But I can say to you this morning, if you're not yet a Christian, then you cannot come. You cannot come to Christ unless God is calling you. Jesus said it in John 6. No one comes to the Father unless no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So if in your heart God is drawing you to Christ, then that's his sovereignty. But in the drawing, you must come. You got to come. You got to get up amongst the pigs. You got to get up from the swine of unbelief and denial of God. You've got to put that behind you and you've got to turn facing the Father and come back to God. Do I understand how that all works? I don't. I just know it does. Because I'm here. And some of you are here. Yes? I do want you to notice something, though. And by the way, I believe this, too. No matter how hard our culture tries to dismiss God, no matter how far it may go in its depravity, in its confusion, in its denial, the most fundamental denials imaginable, denying whether you can know whether you're a man or a woman, for instance. On and on it goes. But listen to me. No matter how hard the grave diggers dig to bury what they consider a dead God, they're never going to bury him. They're never going to kill him, and they're never going to bury him. Because they already tried to do that. And they nailed him to a cross. And they put him in a tomb. And he came forth saying, not only can you not really kill me, but you can't entomb me either. The risen, living Christ still speaks to the hearts of people today. And he still calls them back to himself. So our culture is going to go where it's going to go. And we have a, a calling to be a voice in the midst of it. To say, we know what you're doing. And holding that spring compressed 
gets very, very tiring. You heap a few more friends around you that are also spring suppressors. Maybe that gives you a little bit of comfort. But there will come a time when you can't hold it anymore. And it has to come forth. When will that be? I hope it won't be on the other side of the grave. Because then it's too late for you. But what I want you to see as we finish up, and I, I went a little longer today. We only get one crack at this a week. So I, I, go ahead and wiggle a little bit in your chair. Move a little bit. Stretch. Five more minutes. When I thought about the reception that the son received from the, from the father in this story, some things came to mind, and that was this. First of all, the father's reception was not gradual. There's no sense in which the son would slowly make his way. Maybe he would send out some servants to talk to him. He has to go clean up. He's going to stay. Maybe in the next few days I might acknowledge that he's here on the property again. There's nothing gradual about his reception. It's an overwhelming reception of love and mercy and grace where he runs to the Son, embracing him, kissing him, bringing out the robe, the ring, and the sandals. It's incredible. It is not gradual. It's all at once instant. And that's how it is when a person comes to Jesus Christ. You are fully accepted by God. And it's not a long, drawn-out process. I mean it's right now. That's the heart of God reflected in this Father. And not only is it not gradual, it's not partial. We sang a little while ago, and I know we sing these words, and we don't even fathom what they mean. What it means to be Sons and daughters of God, what it means to be heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ himself. All of the riches of God's eternal kingdom are ours. The moment we come to repentance and receive Christ and are welcomed into the family of God. And it's not partial. It's not given out piecemeal. All of his sons and daughters are granted righteousness in the sight of God. The perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. By grace. By his scandalous, outrageous, almost embarrassing grace that saves us and rescues us and restores us to full inheritance in the family of God. Not only is it not gradual and not partial, but amazingly enough, it's not temporary. Well, son, it's good to have you back and we'll get you cleaned up and get some food in you and once you get your strength back and all, then you'll be on your way again. And some of us forget about grace. We forget that that. That's why we have a hard time praying. You know why we have, a, after all these years of being Christians, we still have a hard time praying at times. Really talking to God. Because we don't feel worthy. Or we, don't, or we feel dry. 
or a, a hundred other reasons. Always doing one major blunder. And that major blunder is this. Your acceptance at the throne of God to talk to your father and my acceptance at his throne to talk to him is always on the grounds of grace. You don't get fit. You don't get in the right posture. You don't get in the right frame of mind. You don't get any of that. In fact, it's so ludicrous that this story really teaches us if we got to the second part, which we can't, we need to repent of our own righteousness. I want you to take the very best you have to offer to God and then repent of it. Because He's holy. Because He's God. We don't go before Him with this sense of deserving and merit. It's grace. Amazing grace. Scandalous grace that receives a son back like this. And so, not only is it not gradual, it's not a partial reception. The robe, the kiss, the ring, the sandals, the fatted calf, you know what all that was saying? You are fully restored. That's what it was saying. Just like that. <laughs> How can God be like that? No wonder the Pharisees don't understand Jesus and why I don't even understand him half the time because he's so good, good beyond measure. And it's not temporary. Even when we suffer, even when we go through tough things, Dave Borders quoted the other day in prayer, we were the elders and all of us were meeting for prayer. And, you know, we all stand amazed as we watch Dave, who's a constant reminder to us of the goodness and grace of God. Because, as you know, Dave has a very serious kind of cancer. And as Nadine shared with us recently, that, um, you know, there's a, the life cycle, the life expectancy of somebody that's diagnosed like Dave is, is just a few years. And he's over the curve of that now. And his numbers have never been better than just recently. And, and yet both Nadine and Dave live continually with the awareness of standing on the brink of eternity. And God being the multitasker that he is, Dave is a constant reminder to us all that we need to live this Christian life we get one day at a time until we're finished. And when we're done with our course, God will call us home. And Dave constantly reminds me of that as I uphold him and pray for him and thank God for him. But the other day in prayer, we were praying and Dave quoted this passage. God, we know. <laughs> he said that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. His reception and acceptance is not temporary. When we finish up in this world, we transition to glory. It's permanent. It's secure because we're part of the family. We go home with the robe, the sandals, the ring. You see, he's already 
thrown his arms around us who know Christ. Do you get that? He's already robed you. You're his. You can't have a better standing with God than you already have if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. You're in. And you're in for keeps. And so, don't be like those Christians that struggle in their lives and falter in sin. And the next thing you know, the father is looking around and he's at the breakfast table and he says, where's my son this morning? This is the third morning he's not been here for breakfast. I didn't see him last night either. Where is he? And the servants that are standing around, they're, they're, they're hesitant to say anything, but they say, well, they say to the father, well, we don't sure what's come over him. We don't know what's wrong with him, but we heard that he's way out behind the barn. And they're scared to say, he's been seen back among the pigs. Because guilt and shame, he got to thinking about how unworthy he was and that this grace and goodness of God is too great for me. I don't deserve this. I need to take my place where I think I deserve. Some Christians do that. They take off the robe and the ring and the sandals. They're still saved. They belong to Christ if they're born again. But they put on, go dig up their, their old rags out of the trash that were supposed to be burned and they put them back on and they go out there behind the barn and that's where they're found. Don't do that. Come to God fresh every new day and thank Him for His incredible saving grace that's restored you to the family, to the Father. And the amazing thing about all this story is this. Did the Father, is there any indication in the story that the Father was all upset about the third of the estate that was liquidated for the son. Was he counting coins? Was he, was he later regretting? Is there any indication in the story that it's about that at all? No. It's about the father and his love for his son. I think sometimes God is so good, it hurts. You know what I mean? Let's pray. Our Father... By the truth of your word and by the power of the Holy Spirit, if there's a single person in this room hearing this message today, we pray together that you will put a stop to the arguments that are going on in their hearts and minds. That you would hush and still those voices that would say to them that they, this, this all sounds too good and it's certainly too good for me. We pray that you will silence that 
and they will see the heart of God in this Father running, embracing, kissing, clothing, and celebrating His Son returning. So God, if there's anyone here who's in a who's gone to a far country, bring them home. Bring them home and back to yourself, Father. Draw them for your own fame and grace and goodness and glory. Draw them back to yourself and restore them. Sinners they are. Sinners we all are. God, thank you. Thank you for your son. Thank you for recording this story so we would never lose it. Thank you. In Jesus' name.